0: Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Three guests this week, two segments, a uh, really good podcast. First up, Jeff Van Gundy, the, uh, the lead NBA analyst for ESPN and ABC. He is followed by Chad Finn and Kavitha Davidson. Kavitha Davidson is of The Athletic. Chad Finn is of The Boston Globe. They join me. On our Sports Media Roundtable, Jeff Van Gundy and I discuss all the uh, issues coming up when it comes to NBA broadcasting to start the season. Uh, A little Kyrie Irving talk as well. So I think that is going to be an interview you enjoy. And then Kavitha, Chad, and myself, we have a long roundtable on a number of things, including John Gruden. NFL viewership, Sage Steele, hockey starting at ESPN and Turner Sports, what ESPN's going to do with Sunday Night Baseball. So if you want to nerd out with some sports media talk, um, Kavitha, Chad, and I go very long. But first up, it's Jeff Van Gundy of ESPN, followed by Kavitha Davidson and Chad Finn on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, Jeff Van Gundy, Uh, is the first guest. He joined ESPN in 2007 as an NBA analyst, serves as an analyst for the finals on ABC, the conference finals, uh, NBA Saturday primetime on ABC, obviously works ESPN's regular season schedule and playoffs. Prior to coming ESPN, I think every basketball fan knows Jeff was uh, head coach of the Rockets and the Knicks. His first game is October 20th, Celtics uh, against the Knicks. And then he has the Sixers, On that Friday, and as we talk here during this podcast, I'll find out who they're playing, but uh, man, what a great schedule. Get Celtics, Knicks, and then uh, head into the Sixers with Ben Simmons and everything else. And pleased to be joined by Jeff Van Gundy on the Sports Media Podcast. Jeff, thank you. I know you've been traveling a lot, so I appreciate you taking the time to do this. No problem. All right, let's start here, Jeff. Um, And This is one of the things I'm, I'm always interested in for every guest that I have on here, and that's sort of preparation and process. And for you, I wonder, how do you prepare for an upcoming season? And feel free to go as granular as you'd like.
1: Yeah, I, I don't really do a whole lot other than watch. You know, I just like to watch. I like to watch games. I like to, uh, you know, I don't really, I got a few friends that I'll talk to, but uh, in the NBA, but it's not like I'm sitting there calling a lot of people. I know people's time is valuable in coaching and they've got, a lot of media responsibilities, so they don't need to be talking to me. But I, I would say it's as simple as – I think this is where a color guy has it uh, really good, is that, you know, I'm not a stat guy. I, I, don't, I don't like throw out a lot of stats. Um, not that I don't think when I was coaching, stats are, are incredibly valuable. I just have never – you know, you have to find what you feel is best. Um, broadcasting-wise. So I don't sit there, you know, I know the stats on on the teams, but it's not like I'm sitting there going to ever say, this guy's shooting, you know, 44 from the three, unless it's something that stands out. So I, I think the, the thing I like to do uh, most, Richard, is I just like to watch games. I think that gives me the best perspective on uh, whatever, in the individual game, but also the broader scale of the whole league. And I like to watch trends about how the game's being played. Um, you know, it may have changed a little, it may have changed a lot, or may have changed uh, not at all. So I I really enjoy that part.
0: Jeff, um, you know, having talked to a lot of uh, a lot of analysts and broadcasters over the years, obviously play by play people have their charts, and it's almost I mean it's it's a work of art. For some people, you know, I'm sure you've seen Mike Breen's charts and, and other people who you've worked with. So it's vital that a play by play person has that. Talk to Hubie Brown and some other analysts like in your position in Hubie's case. I mean, it's it's like hieroglyphics. He's got just like every stat. He's got his own way to read it. It's pretty fascinating to look at his chart. Do you have anything in front of you in terms of notes, or just to sort of follow up what you were saying before? Is it all instinctual, and you're just calling what's in front of you?
1: Yeah, you know what when I first uh, started broadcasting, I still remember the first game I did. it was in uh, the Old Meadowlands, and um I was doing it with Marv albert and and uh, Mike Fratello. And you know i so I had no idea what they were talking about. They were speaking a foreign language. But I saw Marv's like charts and, you know, I couldn't read it, but, you know, he could. And it was extensive. But Mike Fratello also had one. And so I didn't do a game for probably, I don't know. um, It was a long bit of time because I was just like sort of a guest appearance. And I'm not sure exactly how long, but I tried to do that where I'd have like a lot of notes. And I found myself looking down instead of watching the game. And so for me, it didn't work. Um, for others, it works great. And uh, I, so I have stats there, just the overall, like both teams. If it's a playoff series, uh, what the playoff you know numbers are. Um, but very rarely am I going to look down. I like to look what's happened on the court. I love w- watching uh, the body language of teams. Uh, what's happening on the bench. Um, And I like watching what the referees are either doing, saying. Um, So I I sort of keep my focus there. And like I said, I I think for some, it works great. Having a lot of notes for me, I just like, you know, watching what's happening on the floor.
0: Jeff, um, you, as I mentioned at the top, uh, you've been with, make sure I have this ESPN since 2007. So we're looking at 14 years if I do my math right um, having covered uh, sports media and television in particular for a long time, I mean, that's a lifetime for somebody in a job. I mean, you know this in the business. There are people who are sort of in and out. Um, that's an incredible career. Uh, incredible for you, incredible second career. Do you have any sense? Um, and I know it's a little bit of reflection here, if you could sort of take yourself away from you. But why do you think you've lasted? Uh, because not, you are an anomaly in the sense that you have had this sort of um, top broadcast job now, for more than a decade, and that that's a rarity, generally speaking, in any sport.
1: Yeah, so I think it comes back to um, you know the people you work you know for now. Upper management, like, has changed a lot over time. In my time at ESPN, you know, um, you know the direct bosses, or um, that's changed a lot. But you know, Tim Corrigan's been my boss ever since I've been there, and I think. Uh, you know, he, he I think you know he, he his trust in what Mike Mark and I are doing has been appreciated, and um that doesn't mean he he never comes back at me and says, "Hey, that was stupid or you can't you can't say that. that's you know, so I, I like it. He, you know, he's both uh, a friend and a boss, and that's a a hard uh, line to walk, and I, but I think it's it's that and i think then it's mark and mike you know like um they're so good at what they do you know like they they make it easy um or uh, easier uh to be yourself and i think the thing i've liked about it um and i think it's so important i think it's overlooked too is like in any job they hire you to be who you are versus trying to change you and i I think you know tim and mike and mark have accepted me so um you know sometimes i think it's as simple as that I, i really do like if you're on a great team uh and you know mike is the is the you know all world point guard you know the chris paul of of his generation you know it's a lot easier to uh fit in around greatness than it is to try to be great. And, you know, so we're very fortunate that Mike is what he is.
0: Do you feel like you, how long you want to do this is tied to Mark and Mike? Or, or it, do you love the job so much that while you obviously like working with those guys, if you had a new play by play person, if you had a new color person, you'd, it, it, you'd still continue because you enjoy the work?
1: Yeah, that's a, I hadn't really thought about that. I would say a big part of the job for me is uh, how much I like who I work with. I really, you know, but you know, the good part during the regular season is I get to work with, you know,
0: yeah. Other guys. Yeah.
1: And I love Dave Pash and Ryan Rucco and Mark Jones. Like I really like the variety and um, it's fun. Um, and so in, in the regular season, we do more like two man boosts. So, um, other than the ABC games, Christmas and, you know, the uh, Saturday uh, special. And then I think the first two games of the year this year, we're working together too, all, all of us. Um, it, sometimes we don't get to, you know, work together that much. But then when you get in the playoffs, it, it reminds you how much you really enjoy being around these guys. I would say this. I think uh, Michael probably outlast us all. You know, I think Michael. will, um, you know, I mean, he's got a busy schedule between the Knicks and and ESPN and ABC. I'm not sure if he'd want to keep that up forever, but I think he'll be doing, you know, broadcasting in some form for a long, long time. And uh, he is a great, great representative of NBA basketball. So I would say he would be doing a, a pass when Mark and I, you know, like you don't want to overstay your welcome either. You know, it's like, you know, for myself, it's like, you mentioned it, even every time somebody says it, like 14 years or whatever it's been, it's like, wow, I just tried to do it because I didn't want to move after I got let go by the Rockets, you know, and it's a good job for that. I, I never for a second thought this would be a a second career, but you know, again, I was so fortunate to stumble into when guys, Mike and Mark, you know, that I, I had known forever and then You know, Tim accepted me for who I was.
0: I want to, I want to sort of posit something to you. If if I'm wrong about this, you can say that that's bullshit. You you have no idea what you're talking about. But let me let me sort of kick it tee and see if you agree. Um, I have found, just as a viewer, that you have not really changed much since you started ESPN in terms of sort of what you believe about basketball. Uh, your style as a broadcaster. And a lot of times you'll say stuff and you're sort of, you have, you're, it's a little bit like Charles Barkley in a way where you'll say something and like if people don't like it, they don't like it. If they like it, they do like it, but you're going to speak your mind. My theory is that, and this also goes to your brother Stan, um, who if you follow Stan Van Gundy on Twitter, like he's going to say what he feels. And if you disagree with him, whether it's politics or social justice or something, it's kind of like an FU. Is there a part of you, Jeff, that because you had success as a basketball coach and, you know, assuming you have not spent all that money, you you, you can sort of retire and, you know, what they call in the business, fuck you money, that you're just going to be you and, like, not necessarily worry about trying to be something that you're not? Am I, am I on to something in terms of how you have sort of approached the job? Where maybe for somebody else who really needs that job, like, maybe they pull punches or they're a little less... Hey, I'll, I'm willing to sort of bend the knee a little bit. Does that make any sense?
1: Yeah. And I, I, I would say I don't think I have that type of like Charles Barkley money, but I do, you know, I do have a lot of, you know, I, I've been so fortunate, right? So, um, worked in the M, in or around the NBA for what, 30, 30 years, over 30 years, and, you know, been really fortunate. And, I think subconsciously it may be that I feel secure enough that um, if something happened and I didn't have that income, I'd be all right. But I I think it's more I just say what I see and, and say what I believe. And I'm not trying to be, you know, controversial. I'm not trying to be um, – uh, you know where I, where I I drum up interest. I, I just I, I say what I think and and um, and what I see. And I think that's the easiest job, frankly. Like when you're just watching a game, you say what you see. Like you know. And I think sometimes um, the one thing I've tried to consciously do, R- Richard, is uh, I think I've backed off. Um, m- I haven't been as critical of officials. Now, that doesn't mean I won't disagree with the call. But I think there for a while, when I first started, maybe from my coaching background, I was like, whatever I saw with them, I would never let it go. I would be like, you know, that could change this guy's whole career right there, that one non-call in a playoff, right? And so I think that's the one I have consciously tried to do. Now, I think Some in the NBA would say, I need to do it a lot more. Um, I was always astounded that how, like, personal uh, people take it when you talk about officiating. Um, But playing, they expect you to critique what's going on or or coaching moves. But I found out very early on that – you know, some bosses that I've had, and also, you know, the league office, they they don't see that officiating crew on the floor the same way they see the two teams. And I was just taught differently in, in competing. I go back to when I played in college. I played for this guy, Bill Nelson, who coached forever at Nazareth, and then Johns Hopkins. And he always used to say, there were three teams on the floor every night. And they all have a huge impact on uh, the outcome of the game, and I believed it then. I believe it now. Um, I just don't think a lot of people necessarily share that belief.
0: That's interesting. So it tells you how the league sees the talks about the referee as sort of a third rail issue compared to the coaches and the players.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, and, and this is what makes me it's like they're great at what they do. the NBA officials. there's no question. They're great. When you have coached I mean, way, way long ago in college or you go to, which I've had the good fortune, international basketball, right? You understand more and more um, how great our officials are. Uh, and when you're that good, that, and, and you get paid that well, you're that's saying to you, to people, well, you're important. If you weren't important or you couldn't separate yourself, then they wouldn't pay you what they pay these, these great officials. So I've always been – it's like a dichotomy. They want you to say that they're great and they're special, but they don't want as much talk about um, possible, you know, screw-ups. And I think it goes the same way with the rules of the game. I think the NBA made some really good moves this year in trying to reduce um, – the out of bounds, uh, where they could always go to replay, and they, you know, making it make a challenge, um, and and I think sometimes when I have strong feelings about how the game could be better, um, it's not, you know, it may not be taken as as constructive as I think I'm um, I'm giving it.
0: The um, I want to ask you about this obviously because it's right on the news as we're taping this. Uh, the Nets announced today that Kyrie Irving will not play or practice with the team. Until he's eligible to be a full participant. So I wanted to get one your reaction to that, and then secondly, I wonder if you can just put yourself in the in the position of Steve Nash and how on earth do you navigate this 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 kind of uh, season at least at the beginning?
1: That's a bold move by the the Nets, and I think it's obviously uh, there was probably a lot of discussion. You know, obviously through. You know, their owner and Sean Marks, but also I would suspect that Kevin Durant and James Harden had the uh, opportunity to weigh in on how they saw it. And um, I, I didn't think any team would make this type of stand uh, or, or statement um, because it puts you at odds with one of your best players but I think it's a reasonable move and um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what Irving does in response. If he um, continues to stand by uh, not being vaccinated or if the possibility of not only losing the money that he's going to lose, but also uh, losing a season in his prime with a great team, um, whether that makes him change his mind on getting vaccinated or not. And I, Steve Nash, um, did such a terrific job last year navigating a lot, um, injuries, um, per se, you know, big injuries to Harden and to Irving. But I think this is a totally different one. And he's got, I think, a unique, uh, emotional intelligence about him. And I think he, he will be able to pull it off, uh, as well as anybody could. But it's certainly something that I think warrants, you know, further study. And uh, I, I'm really interested what Irving decides to do.
0: I want to read you something you said and then ask you about it. Uh, you said last week, uh, which got a lot of attention. Uh, just in general, you know, it drives me crazy. I'm doing my own research. I would like someone to answer this question. What does that look like? you doing your own research. Are you doing studies yourself? Are you in a lab on a nightly basis? What are you doing? I don't understand what that means. I'm doing my own research. That's obviously in relation to people who are talking about doing their own research when it comes to vaccination. Um, Jeff, you're smart enough to know that obviously um, mandatory vaccinations and COVID-19 has become part of a larger culture war in the US. Uh, There's probably a lot of us who think that is ridiculous, of course, but like that is unfortunately where we are. When it comes to these kind of issues, Jeff, as you know, working at ESPN, like they're sometimes a little uh, queasy, for lack of a better word, about their public people, such as yourself, going down that road. So I want to ask you just sort of a couple questions like you said that you believe it. Do you get any kind of blowback from ESPN from that? And are you aware as you're saying this that you're there's at least going to be some segment of people who hear it who frame that under uh you know, like sort of culture as opposed to anything else?
1: Yeah, I didn't get any blowback. Um, and I'm not a political guy. I- I'm certainly... You're uh, not Stan. No, 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 no. Um, you know, I'm, you're not going to see me on, on social media or anything like that. And I think I, I probably am more middle of the roadish type things. But the one thing, you know, logic and common sense... Um, to me, on on that particular in, uh, instance of doing your own research, like there was a guy I went to uh, college with my first year of college, and I was at Yale, and it was, there was this guy on the floor, he wanted to be a doctor. We only had 12 uh, guys on our floor, and he could study through all hell breaking loops, right? Very serious. Um, his name's Dr. Fred Lang, right? So I moved to Houston and he happens to live two streets um, over from me. It's crazy. Right. And he's a big cancer uh, brain cancer guy at MD Anderson here in Houston. See, that's the guy doing the research. Like I I think I'm, I'm fairly intelligent. I couldn't be begin to decipher what all the studies and um, how they go about it. And, how they come to the conclusion they come to. That That's the thing I was, I was talking about. It's just like, if you choose not to get a vaccine, as crazy as it sounds to me, but if you choose to do that, please don't insult us all with, you know, that your research is going to turn up something that all these brilliant doctors around the g- world, um, like the guy I mentioned, and who are so heavily invested. It would be as absurd to me, Richard, as asking a doctor um, how Kyrie Irving should work on his you know, crossover game and his handle. Like That guy thinking he knows more about that than a basketball guy. It's just like, sometimes I just don't think we're respecting all that is being invested into this fight. And again, I, I'm not trying to be super political. I actually just thought I didn't even think that would be controversial. I just think it's like common sense. And, um, you know, sometimes common sense is in short supply, but, you know, I I don't know. I just, that one thing sets me off uh, more than anything when it comes to people trying to rationalize, not taking, you know, a shot. And I know there's people that work at ESPN that, would vehemently disagree with me. I read some things that Sage Steele uh, said, um, uh, and I was like, I was taken aback. I really was. I mean, it's, you know, so it's not like I think everybody's agreeing with me, but on that one, I just thought it was somewhat obvious uh, in, in that small segment of doing your own research. I,
0: I just don't get it. I appreciate you answering that, Jeff, a couple more and then I'll, uh, I'll let you go. Um, One of the things I'm always curious about, um, you know, because I write a lot about, um, television viewership and historically in every sport across the board, um, there's a benefit for league to have super teams benefit for league to have polarizing teams for sure. I mean, the Yankees, there's a reason the Yankees get the highest viewership. The Cowboys get the highest viewership. Um, do you think, um, like, for, for, do you think for the, the good of the game, is it better to have, like, Warriors-type teams, lakers types teams, I guess, this year? I mean, the Nets would be, obviously. We'll see what happens with Kyrie. Because um, I think that's really good for the league in terms of a viewership play. But but I, I'm not... Um, I'm probably not looking at it the way maybe some other people might look at it. Like, is it good for the league? Is it good for parity? Is it good for each individual franchise? How, how do you see that? Kind of discussion. Because on the one hand, like that's going to benefit you and your job if like some of these teams are awesome because people are going to want to tune in. On the other hand, I'd be curious your take. Like, I don't know if that's good for the Toronto's or the Detroit's, et cetera.
1: Yeah. I, I think it is uh, great to have, you know, great teams without question um, in any league, standard bearers of excellence. But I think what each league should strive to do. Is not parity per se, but the opportunity, if well-managed, that you can win in your league if you do a good job. Like, you don't want to have – and I, I'm not sure in baseball. Like, Tampa Bay is like – I know they got eliminated, uh,
0: but my parents are – But they're, they're, the, but they're, the, they're amazing, they're, the outliers yeah, of all this. They're the
1: yeah. standard for making the most of what you have. Um, but I think baseball, other than them, it's really difficult, right? Basketball and football seem like if you're well managed and you make the right moves, draft choices per sec, you know, um, you can be good. Um, and I think that is important. You don't want any fan bases in your sport knowing when the season starts that you have no chance. And, um, And you most likely never will because of the disadvantages that you may be up against uh, financially. Uh, And so I think the NBA is well-positioned like that. You know, we have seen, um, you know, smaller markets succeed. You know, last year, Utah had the best record in the uh, West. Uh, That didn't translate into, you know, playoff success, but, you know, they got very, very good. And I think, I think that's important, but you still want to have great teams, um, because you want to be shooting for excellence. You don't want everybody in an 82 game season being between, you know, 44 and 38 wins. You know, you want some, you know, greatness within your league.
0: Last two for me. Um, one's going to be sort of a hometown question. Cause I live in Toronto and I'm just sort of curious on your take There there's always a, uh, There always seems to be a thought in Toronto and certainly among a lot of Raptors fans that the, the Raptors are always going to be at a disadvantage in attracting the highest of caliber free agents, the Durant level, you know, uh, LeBron level, et cetera. Obviously they made the Kawhi trade. It turned out to be incredible, but um, the thought here, I think if I'm sort of Uh, taking a large base of people fairly is the only way the Raptors can get that kind of player is to draft that player to sort of get lucky that you get a unicorn and maybe Scotty Barnes is that, or he's not. Is from your perspective, Jeff, given that you certainly coach in the league and you're around everybody in the league, like, is that a true perception that the the Raptors are at a significant disadvantage when it comes to a certain level of free agent, not, not, not a good player, but I'm talking about a transcendent type of player to consider this market.
1: I would say, for the most part, yes, absolutely, and I don't, But I don't think they're the only ones. You know, I think the cold weather uh, is is just not as attractive as to some, uh, to many of, like you said, the transcendent uh, players. Um, but when well managed, they've been able to be very good, and uh, they have drafted and they have done an excellent job of coaching. Um, but I, but I do think – think about it. They've had – and I, I may be missing somebody. Yeah. So they've had four off the top that I can think of that they had, Hall of Famers, that ended up leaving.
0: Yeah, Vince Carter, Chris Bosh, right? And McGrady. McGrady and, and now Kyle Lowry.
1: Okay. Yep. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so, you know,
1: that's a talent drain. That's very hard, very, very hard to overcome. And that's why I'm so impressed with what they do. You know, they took a step, you know, back last year. Maybe they will this year. It's hard to sustain winning. And, you know, people start acting like there's some secret sauce. You know, the word I hate the most in sports now is culture. Like our culture, this culture. Like you have to have a certain level of talent in any league to be able to compete. And once you have that requisite amount of talent, then the intangibles that go into winning or losing mean something. Without the the talent though, you think you're going to just overachieve cuz your guys are playing hard? Well, so are the other dudes. The other dudes are playing hard, they're well coached, you know. You don't walk into any NBA like you can go to any NBA game and I know fans love to you know, nitpick coaches, but they're all well prepared. They all coach well. They know what they're doing. They wouldn't rise to that level if they if they didn't have a level of competence. Um, and so you're not getting some huge advantage. Um, and, and so, I, I think the Toronto fan, um, first of all, having grown up in from high school on in Rochester, I was always in Toronto. Um, and then when I started coaching in the NBA, you know, uh, when I was the Knicks coach, we had a couple of series up there and they had great – like the fan support is off the charts. I'm not sure why you wouldn't want to play in Toronto if you were a great player because you will be beloved. Like, I mean, you'll be a national hero. Like, I mean, and it is great fan base. Great arena, huge money, terrific city. So I'm not sure why, but I, I agree with the the general consensus of the Toronto fan that would be very, very difficult to recruit a transcendent um, free agent. It will be drafting, it'll be trading, and um, you know that's why I've so been so impressed with uh, how they've been managed over the years.
0: Last one for me is I'm always fascinated by um, uh, analysts in production meetings across all sports. And a lot of times if I'll talk to like... You know, the CBS or NFL, uh, the CBS or NBC NFL crews, it's very clear that like Tony Romo might have a really good relationship with a quarterback or a coach. And it feels like that coach or quarterback may say more to Romo than someone else. The same thing feels like with Collinsworth, who um, just even taking the last couple of weeks, has a great relationship with Belichick. And it seems like NBC is able to get some more stuff out of Belichick um, than others. When you and Mark, particularly, go into a production meeting, do you find that because you both coached in the league? that the coaches that you talk to might be more um, open with you, even if you don't use it on the air, more honest with you, than they would be, let's say, if it's, and no offense, but like if it's Mike Breen and and someone else, let's say, who didn't coach in the league.
1: Well, I think it's it's very interesting. I think it comes back to trust. And I don't
0: know about NFL,
1: but in the NBA, and I think it's probably going to change again this year a little bit, Um, There used to be more people in the room when they were talking, when the coaches were talking. And I think I thought it was a lot of times sort of a waste of time. You know, you know, a lot of platitudes, no real, like, you know, insight. And I don't blame the coaches. You do have to be cognizant of what you're saying. And you don't know a lot of these people. Like, you know, you may know, Mike, Mark, and I, but you may not know the production people and, and not, not know. Um, and I think what the NBA, we did, a, you know, we used to do it on camera a lot. Now we do it off um, camera. And there'll be certain coaches that will text me something uh, afterwards. And a lot of it is, you know, use your own words, but this is what's going on. Um, and, you know, and you want to try to protect, you know, you don't want to because you're just trying to get answers that you may have of like, I wonder why this guy's not playing or is this a legit injury or is he, you know, milking the injury, you know, things of that nature. And so um, you want them to to steer you right, but also, you know, make sure that you don't break any confidence. And so I think – It depends on how many people are in the room and how well you know them. And I think the real information you get is going to be a lot of times not in those meetings, but either through a text or a call either before or right after that meeting. You know, I, I had one guy one time, he just said the opposite in the meeting about how wonderful a guy is. And I might've, I might've, uh, you know, had a strange look on my face, and he, he just ca- called and said, "Hey, I, I, you know, I was bullshitting in there, and I, you know, but I, but I have to, and you no, know, and I heck, having coached, yeah, you know how that goes. Like, you're not always in, you know, not every player coach relationship is the same, and just like in any relationship, things go up and down, and so, um, and I appreciate when they. You know, even if there's nothing to use, that I feel like they're telling me the truth. And again, I don't have that relationship with every, you know, coach. I don't know every coach that well, particularly the longer you're out uh, and the newer, younger coaches. You know, I, you know, I was thinking about this today. Um, Wes Unsell Jr., the coach of the Wizards, right? I coached against his dad, and Wes Unsell Jr. played for my college coach that I mentioned previously at Johns Hopkins. That's how old I am now. Like you know, uh, and and just so like, um, you know like like I know Michael Malone. I coached with his dad, and I coached with Michael. You know, there's certain guys like you know that you know, and there's other guys you you know you just you just don't really know that well. So. Um, but I love talking to coaches, Richard. I just, you know, uh, I have great empathy for how hard a job it is. Um, and, uh, it's really one of the highlights. I love getting the chance to, to listen to them.
0: Jeff Van Gundy is ESPN's lead Analyst for the finals, conference finals, uh, Saturday primetime, uh, ESPN uh, regular season and ABC regular season games. You obviously know when he does the finals, he works with Mike Breen, Mark Jackson, Doris Burke. Um, he will be on the call of, uh, the Celtics and Knicks on October 20th. That's Jeff's, uh, first game and then heads to Philly after that. Jeff, I can't thank you enough for the time. I I always enjoy, um, when I have a chance to go a little longer form with you and, uh, wish you nothing but the best this season and, uh, safe travels and health. And, uh, thanks for joining me today on the sports media podcast. Appreciate it,
1: Richard. Thank you. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner,
2: adaptability is more important than ever.
0: All right, this um, this is not going to sound smooth, which I think is a hallmark and trademark of this podcast, but the John Gruden news broke after I taped with Chad and Kavitha, so they were kind enough to return the next day, Which um, uh, so you have a sense of this. We're taping this on Tuesday now, October 12th, so I'm bringing them back on for a segment about John Gruden, and then we will continue with what we taped on Monday, which was the larger Roundtable. So pleased to be joined by uh, Chad Finn and Kavitha Davidson, who were very kind enough to pop back on. Again, for Kavitha and Chad, for those who don't know the story, although I think if you're a sports fan, I don't know how you could not know this. John Gruden resigned as the head coach of the Las Vegas Raiders following reports that um, emails he wrote over a, basically a decade, 10-year period, included racist, misogynistic, anti-gay language. That came shortly after the New York Times reported on this um this uh sort of followed uh emails from gruden that surfaced about a racist comment he made about nfl players association executive director demora smith as well as um criticism of roger goodell all right so there's there's a lot to sort of go here uh i'll start with you kavitha you know um there's a lot we could sort of take this in terms of uh A media aspect. I think one of the things that I'm interested in is, does this now lead to reporting uh, or more reporting or a real attempt to get into the workplace misconduct of the Washington football team, which is clearly where these emails are from? Um, There's also issues about, you know, does ESPN have any role here in terms of um, saying something, given Gruden was the face of ESPN's NFL program at that time? Uh, I'm just going to open up to you. When you saw the story break yesterday, Um, where, where, where did you, where was your mind going? What were your thoughts on it?
2: Yeah. I mean, I I fired off this tweet and then I fired off a column about this. My first reaction was this is not just John Gruden. And exactly what you said about this coming up during um, an investigation into the Washington football team's toxic workplace culture. I mean, most of these emails were sent to Bruce Allen. So I think that we can, you know, my my first reaction was John Gruden doesn't say this in a vacuum. He knows he has a sympathetic ear on that end. He knows that at least Bruce Allen and whomever else he's sent these emails to um, isn't going to take issue with the kind of language that he used or the characterizations of, of these of these people and these issues. Um, and that, you know, this is, you know, I think the, the thing about accountability is that we like to feel like it's final. So lose it, you know, John Gruden resigning, it makes us feel good that this seems like a final step. But there is so much, there are so many other John Grudens to weed out here. And I would love to see what else is in those 650,000 plus emails at the New York Times, uh, of which the New York Times obtained some and, and that the NFL, has had to go through. Um, it's it's really kind of surprising that Dan Snyder's name has not come up in any of these yet. I think that, uh, you know, A lot of people's reaction yesterday and today has been, well, now we kind of understand why uh, the NFL was so quick to settle with Colin Kaepernick. They don't want any part of that discovery that would come out in those legal proceedings. Right. Um, So, yeah, I'm really curious to see what else comes out, because this is absolutely not limited to one man.
0: All right. So, Chad, if you're going to sort of play um, reporter here. Um, clearly there's, these emails were leaked. It it feels, I mean, I don't think it's a big leap leap for me to say they were intentionally leaked. Um, and so we got emails or at least the New York times got emails on Gruden. Let's believe those reporters who are very good, saw them highlighted what the most, uh, notable emails was. So what's next now in terms of your media, I think obviously you try, you know, if you're, if you cover the league and certainly if you cover the Washington football team, you know, you are trying very hard to sort of, I think, get the details of, of that investigation, but it's very clear the NFL, the NFL doesn't want more than what came out to come out. So it's a pretty interesting, um, I would think there'd be some pretty interesting discussions going on in the investigative parts of some news outlets today.
3: Yeah, hopefully, uh, this ought to ramp up the, the pressure on the NFL to, um, to reveal what further what's in those emails. I mean, it feels like Daniel Snyder is a protected man right now. And as Kavitha said, I mean, uh, there's comfort for John Gruden in sending these emails and knowing he's not going to get a what the hell man from from Bruce Allen or anybody else he was sending it to. There was um, uh, a level of complicitness that uh, this language was okay. And so you look at this and you say, there are a lot of other people involved here, you know, John, John Gruden rightfully took the fall, his career is destroyed. Keyshawn Johnson was on there saying, uh, you know, he been a fraud all along on ESPN this morning and um, he deserves that. But there, there are a lot of other people clearly, in these 650,000 emails that have things in there that uh, if they got out would significantly alter and probably ruin their careers. And that stuff's in there on the level that Gruden's is. Uh, they deserve to have their careers ruined and there's going to be more amplification and more pressure on, uh, the league and, and, and potential sources to, to get to the bottom of what's in there. And, uh, you know, who's implicated in some of this language.
0: Kavitha, I want to, uh, I want to ask you sort of two things and then Chad, you should respond. I'm curious how you both see this. And I'm certainly happy to tell you how I think on, on the second part, um, one, in your opinion, Kavitha, what is the SPN's responsibility here, if they have any responsibility, given Gruden was an employee of the SPN at the time? And then two, while I agree with Chad, I think John Gruden's NFL career is certainly over. Maybe his coaching career at either the highest college football levels or the NFL is over. I would never say in a million years his media career is over, because I'm a realist and a cynic. So... um so first part, what's ESPN's responsibility? Second part, could you see in a couple of years after sort of an apology tour, Gruden returning to some kind of um, football media job?
2: Yeah. So on the first part, um, you know, he was, as you said, kind of the face of ESPN's NFL coverage at the time that the D. Smith emails were sent. And you know, it, it this whole thing just kind of shows how much a part of the football machine ESPN really is. Like on the one hand, there are absolutely dogged journalists over there who will call out corruption and, you know, and, and everything like that. And on the other hand, they're still they're still part of the company, kinda, right? Um, and and this, like I said, this is not limited to John Gruden. This is something that is endemic to the whole football machine of which ESPN is a part. So I think they absolutely have a responsibility here, not just to, you know, come out with some tightly worded condemnation of um, you know, what John Gruden said and say, you know, he, you know, he does not reflect the values of ESPN. He reflects the values of a lot of the people who work there and who work within the the machine of the NFL, right? Um, and, and that's just that's that's the fact of the matter. Again, Gruden was all too comfortable with the kind of language that he was using. And I think what also can't be lost is in some of the other emails, not when he was employed um, by ESPN. But, some, you know, these emails came out as part of an investigation into the toxic environment in Washington that included sexual harassment and abuse. And one of the things that came out that The New York Times reported on was the sharing of topless photos of women, um, in the organization, including cheerleaders, and there's all obviously been a whole cheerleader, um, you know, uh, revolt against how they've been treated. So this is absolutely a part of that. On the second question, I wish I could sit here and tell you that um, that everybody has learned their lesson <laughs> and uh, and that, uh, you know, John Gruden is untouchable. But we have just seen time and time again. I mean. Tony Dungy is the last person I want to hear from right now, frankly, but he has been all over social media and and uh, and TV talking about this. And Tony Dungy went and did the apology tour, um, you know, when he said a lot of homophobic things. And he's obviously still uh, a respected elder statesman in the league and, and in NFL media. Um, you know, we just celebrated, some of us, some people just celebrated the retirement of Marv Albert. And I'm old enough to remember when uh, when when Marv Albert was thought to be untouchable um, by, you know, from being rehired and and has, you know, completely had this renaissance as the voice of the NBA again. So, uh, yeah, I think in a, in a few years, if John Gruden wants to, um, I think that there will be a place for him somewhere. And what we're seeing right now also is we're seeing a lot of um, kind of whataboutism and, and a lot of people rushing to his defense on especially um, right wing news and sports media networks. So at the very least, he's got he's probably got a spot over there if he wants one.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, just a follow up on I mean, certainly Tony Dungy and um, uh, Mike Tirico uh, have every right to um, to speak to the character of a guy they know or they worked with. But today they got to own looking like fools. I just I don't know how else to 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 be as blunt. I mean, you basically sort of put out there that this is not indicative of the guy you know. And then the next day, basically, New York Times <laughs> drops a front page uh, bomb uh, saying, "Well, here's who this guy." Uh, has been at least in private chat. So I mean, again, that, you know, Dungeon and Tariq are going to have to uh, live with um, their comments, and 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 that's that. Uh, in terms of, in terms of the questions I had for uh, Kavitha, uh, Chad, one: Does ESPN have any sort of responsibility here in terms of uh, the fact that he was working for them or not? And then secondly, um, and I imagine you're probably going to agree with me and Kavitha, um, the prospects of Gruden returning one day to the media if he is interested in doing that obviously after you know a year or two of being away from uh, from the spotlight
1: is he
3: i mean is he gonna end up on fox news or something like that i i, I, I don't
0: th- i actually i don't th- i know i know that's a sort of a joke on that but i don't I, first of all i don't i don't think he'd you know, have uh, the jimmy interest Tra- yeah, yeah jimmy Trina, uh you know our, who also has a sports uh, media podcast uh was I think being serious and saying he would not be surprised if Fox Sports hired Gruden, but no one's no one's touching Gruden in the short term. You just you're not going to sort of do that. You don't necessarily need him. Um, nor do I think he'd go on Fox News. I just I don't I don't see Gruden sort of doing that. But I do think you know a year or two down the r- line, he's you know he gets away from the spotlight. He comes back and says he's learned stuff. He's a different guy. except you know we've seen all this before. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's a very famous person who did. Uh, national primetime games for a decade. I just, I think you'd be naive not to think somebody, um, some company or a streaming company or something like that wouldn't bring him on to be a football outdoor. Well,
3: you know, if OAN gets NFL rights at some point, maybe that's, that's how it happens. But I, I think he's gone for a while. I had a text this morning from uh, somebody who worked with him at ESPN who said, uh, I didn't necessarily get along with him very well, but I had no idea he, uh, he was this person. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing you're going to be hearing from ESPN, unless uh, personalities there, um, management there end up in some sort of email thing with him. I don't think we.
0: Or former players, because Keyshawn Johnson today, who played for him, remember, Right. I mean, yeah, Stephen A. You may too. not like Keyshawn Johnson, or you may think he's a blowhard, but. They um, didn't get along yeah, in Tampa. They're, 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 yeah. yeah yes. There are people who. There are people at ESPN who certainly know Gruden and probably know. Pro- working with him and ESPN probably knew his character good, bad or indifferent. Um, I'm wondering if he had the comfort level probably speak to, it.
3: With, yeah. with, to to talk, talk the way and communicate the way that he does with his NFL cronies.
0: Yeah. It's a great question. Like, did he play the, the what was he more of a, I don't want to say sort of a corporate guy, but you know, you're in a room full of uh John Skipper and you know, Connor shell or, you know, Jay Rothman and Norby Williamson and the rest of the executives, you know, are you going to sort of act one way and then in your sort of private conversation with your football buddies act another way? I will say this. I'm sorry, Chad. I didn't mean to filibuster your segment here. But um, um, the one thing that always struck me, Kavitha and Chad, like having covered ESPN during the Gruden era, they used to speak in Gruden with the most starry-eyed terms, Chad. Do you remember this? Like like John Skipper would use like the word star and like magnetic and like they, they were so enamored with Gruden especially when he first started because they you know they really thought they had like their Cosell like figure and I remember even like upfronts and stuff it, it was like they, they literally treated Gruden like a Hollywood studio treats like Matt Damon and it was always it was just weird and so you do wonder if Gruden didn't even have to go down that road I mean he just sort of walk in you know and all of a sudden like people are like feeding him grapes like they did in Roman times or something
3: yeah, he was on that ultimate tier of people at ESPN. Not only, only salary wise, um, but he was one of those people who didn't have to do media. Uh, Randy Moss is kind of like that now. Uh, there are a few other guys who um, they're so held in, held in such esteem by the people that hired them and treated like uh, superstars that they kind of get a different set of rules and. Um, he was kind. He's probably the number one instance of that, that I can think of, uh, at least among, uh, in the category that he's in of, uh, you know, ex coach, ex athlete, who's turned into a, a color analyst. He was, uh, just put on this pedestal that very few other people get to be put on any of them, uh, salary to back it up. And, uh, I don't know if this means anybody at ESPN complicit, but, uh, 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 we'd have to see what the the interactions are there with Gruden and those people. And I don't think we ever will, but um it's certainly uh it certainly put him in a a position to uh you know be pretty close to untouchable and I'm sure he's felt that way in a lot of different aspects of his life, at least until the last couple of days.
0: The circle it back, Kavitha, that gets back into the, the culture of the Washington football team where there's like a, you know, there's an untouchableness. There's just a feeling that you can't be Um, You can't be touched and and no matter the no sort of no general rules apply to you. And the reality is, like when it comes to NFL owners, like that is generally true. Like the 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 traditional rules that we all sort of play and abide by, like really don't go to NFL owners there. It's just not the case.
2: Well, that's absolutely that's absolutely true when it comes to NFL owners. And it's true within that ownership group, within that group of 32 individuals. There is also um, there is also, you know, an inner circle (laughs) that that wields even more power than the rest of them. Right. Um, And, you know, and it's all it's all connected in some way. I can't remember who it was, but someone tweeted something to the effect of, you know, how could you expect John Gruden not to think casual racism or overt racism was okay when he's sending these emails to an to an email address that's using a racial slur as the team name, you know what I mean? Like all of this is actually connected and Dan Snyder has not been um held accountable for for decades hadn't been held accountable. And the only reason he was was because of sponsorship press pressure over the name. Um, and now I think it is going to be really interesting to see what does, if anything, come out here. You know, like we said, there's more than half a million emails out there. Um, you know, the New York Times probably only had time to go. I don't know how many of them they actually obtained or were yeah, leaked to I them. doubt
0: they got all of them, I would think. Right. It's just a guess. If they got all of them, I think we'd be seeing 25 different stories. Sure. My guess is the leak was specific to... Gruden. well and, and we should all be skeptical yeah.
2: we should all be skeptical about about strategically what was leaked and what was agreed 100%. absolutely
0: i mean there's a reason you know i i uh, making the presumption and i'm going to make the presumption given that one it's the new york times and two um i know one of the reporters for a long time ken belson so i i will just vouch for his professionalism you can take my word for it or not but i i, I would think of ethan chad i think you guys know this like what they published is probably what they had. And if they have more, I think they would publish would have there's no reason for the New York Times not to have published more. So I think you're right, Kavith. And one of the interesting questions is like, you know, that you ask is, okay, why were these leaked? Who leaked them? What was the reason for the leaking now? Right. That's that's who right. Wants, that's the motivation. And yeah, yeah, who right. wants screwed? So and who gone. wants screwed and the gone piece and why I'm why the motivation Um, For that. But yeah, I think now like one of the stories as it sort of advances forward is like who does any can anyone get access to those emails? And I am sure the NFL to protect its own league does not want those emails out there. I mean, I think um, that strikes me as a potential public relations catastrophe for the NFL, given what given what may be what may be in there. And, you know, we'll see if it ever. If it ever gets
2: out, well, it's one of those. It's one of those calculations where is is what in there is what's in there so bad that you absolutely cannot let that get out, or is what's in there bad but mi- like manageable, like you can mitigate yeah, the damage on that, and is that worse? Is that worse than? than what people are going to assume is in those emails if you don't release them. Jenny Vrentis at SI, your former colleague, had a great column today where she's basically said, the NFL needs to release all of this. Like, that is, they need to get out in front well, of this. we and all agree that. with that, but and I it is, we
0: also all agree they're not going to do that. Do we agree that they're, yeah, yeah right. Of course.
2: <laughs> but that's the calculation, is is not releasing that, does that, not releasing that make them look worse because of what we can only imagine yeah. is in there than what's a great actually question. in I, there. I mean,
0: I think they will always err on the side of... Uh, of trying to protect the underbelly of the league. This Again, this is pure speculation, Chad, on my part. I, I mean, I think what they're protecting in those emails is obviously Daniel Snyder and and the top of the snake in terms of that organization. Because I don't, I mean, again, I'm just guessing, I don't think the NFL cares throwing Bruce Allen and, and any mid-level or high-level uh, Washington football team management type uh, under the bus, including the coaches from that time. But Dan Snyder is one of the 32. He, he, that's, that's one of the people who I think they have to protect in terms of the league. So that's, to me, that's the calculation Kavita's is talking about.
3: I can't imagine wanting to protect Daniel Snyder. I mean, I it's know. absolutely true, but I'm
0: sure truth serum. I, I bet you a lot of those guys, not to say the, the, every NFL owner is, you know, is, uh, is Malala and Gandhi. But I, I think some of the, like Steve Tish and Dan
2: Snyder aren't grabbing a beer together, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Right. I think you put on some of these guys under truth serum and they're like, yeah, I hate that effing guy. But, uh, but you know, we, we, you know, many of us have to sometimes work with people we don't, uh, we don't particularly, uh, love.
3: Well, very cynically, I'm, uh, a lot of the stuff Gruden said in these emails, uh, would piss off Roger Goodell pretty, uh, Personally.
0: Are you thinking maybe uh, Goodell is uh, Kevin Kevin, Kevin Spacey stopping limping uh, walking outside. Well look a real,
2: a real thing that people have said either jokingly but there's some truth to it um, is, is the only like I, I personally think what he wrote about D. Smith and listen DeMora Smith is not above criticism. A lot of people think he's been an ineffectual leader. Like there are very legitimate criticisms to levy against him but you're, you went after the man's intelligence and the size of his lips and as I wrote in my column there is a long violent history about that kind of imagery against black folks and you just don't do that. So I think that was a Offense in itself. Now, a lot of people do think that the thing that tipped the scales was that he insulted Goodell, and i you know, the it, it says a lot. It's it's a stupid thing, but it says a lot about the NFL that we kind of have to think about that for a second.
0: I, I think. Let's put it this way. I mean, I don't. I'm not going to get into the weeds. I have no idea if Roger Goodell's, you know, the man behind the curtain here. But uh, if you're, if you're,
2: well, South Park did.
0: Well, I think what we I'm all saying, decided if, that he is. If you're telling me that. Uh, You know, if you're asking me today, is Goodell happy that that Gruden's gone? I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, But Goodell also has to think about the billion-dollar interests of his league, and so you know, you want maybe some of this out, but you don't want all of it out. I think that's we can all agree on that. All right, Uh, Kavitha Davidson, kind enough to come back on the podcast. She, of course, works at the Athletic. Check uh, her work out. As she said, she has a column publishing. On uh, just published on the uh, the Athletic today on Gruden, Chad Finn, sports media writer as well as uh, generalist. I mean, covering the Red Sox, doing Patriots, doing all sorts of stuff for the uh, the Boston Globe. And once again, anybody who counts the Red Sox out has once again been 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 proven to be incorrect as that team continues to go. And, heading forward now in the American League championships. Yeah, I've done right. at least Chad. five
3: times myself, so.
0: I know. Listen, in Toronto, we 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 still cannot believe that 5-1 lead against the Nationals fell on, on that Sunday. Chad, um thank you, Kavitha, thank you very much. All right, just quick back in the studio. My thanks to Kavitha and Chad for uh, for giving me some extra time. It was very very kind of them, but we wanted to give you some stuff on Gruden. And now let's return to the conversation we taped uh, the day before where we start with NFL ratings. All right, so let's start here. Um, From Anthony Krupe of Sportico, thank you very much, also who's been a guest on this podcast for providing this data. Um, Through the the first four weeks of the 2021 NFL season, the NFL's national and regional windows had averaged 16.5 million viewers. That was up 14% or 2 million per game versus 2020 I mean, that's a big number. And then also up 3% versus the same period in pre-pandemic 2019. Uh, we're taping this on um, Monday, October 11th. So We don't have the ratings yet for the Sunday games, although I would expect that those numbers to be pretty good, particularly that Bills-Chiefs uh, game. Uh, we'll see how that uh, plays out. When went a little bit later into the night, but uh, but we'll see if uh, the Midwest held. Chad, I want to start with you. Um What do you make of these NFL viewership numbers? Because if if you're the networks and if you're the league, obviously you got to be overjoyed.
3: Yeah, I struggled with this, Rich, because I I thought things um, in terms of viewership last season and the the real guts of the pandemic were going to stay the same or maybe even would go up a little bit just because people didn't have anything to do. And that's not what happened. I mean, uh, everything on television dropped football took a lesser hit than most things, but uh, for the most part, TV ratings were down, even though we were housebound. Up here in New England, I think the highest rated Patriots game last year was the first one, and it was about two-thirds of the audience that they normally get. It just uh, it didn't connect, and as we see the broadcasts uh, being getting back to what we've, we've grown up with, what we're used to, crazy fans, all that, I think we realize that the TV product really matters and uh, the quality of the broadcast. And it was hurt last year by not having fans for the most part in the stadiums, at least during the regular season. It just wasn't as compelling or interesting a television product. And I didn't expect it to happen, but I think it really affected uh, how often people tuned
2: in. Kavitha? Yeah. I mean, I, I've kind of, I kind of always take NFL ratings in particular with a grain of salt. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when the drop in ratings after the 2016 season or after the 2015-16 season was because supposedly because fans had stopped watching because of kneeling during the anthem um, instead of what was probably a more uh, astute theory, which was there was actually an artificial bump in ratings that season because it was Peyton Manning's last year in the league, Um you know, one of the, to, to Chad's point, it, it was really interesting to see ratings drop last year when people were at home, um, but there was actually a poll that came out um, several months ago from Marist College, um, and our old friend Richard, uh, Jane McManus, runs, runs the sports communications department there, and it basically said that people weren't watching, even though people had all of this time and were stuck at home and everything, people weren't watching sports as much in general because sports is a communal experience, and they couldn't have people over to their homes when we were all quarantining and social distancing to do that safely so I think there is something to be said about that I think there's also something to be said about just the psychological effect of what the last 18 months have had on people that maybe sports just wasn't the most important thing that maybe they weren't really in the mindset to watch to watch football every week um and clearly that's rebounding now and I also think that you know Nielsen is trying to overhaul how it measures digital viewership, and it, it continues to get slightly better at that. So I think that's probably a factor in play here as well.
0: Uh, those are really interesting points, Kavitha. Chad, I want to, uh, I want to, I want to go with you here, just because it's, um, a lot of this has to do with the singular game in your mark, And then, Kavitha, you should obviously follow up. You know, I talked to Fred Godelli. Before the season started this year, and he, you and Fred are tight. Yeah, we are tight. No, I'm Fred's probably tighter with others, but yeah, we, we're we're tight enough there. Um, and I certainly respect uh, his uh, his work uh, over the years. Although the other day, Al Michaels and uh, uh, Chris Conner, I mean, just selling the soap for uh the Brady Belichick relationship. It was like uh, I expected uh, Ali McGraw and Ryan O'Neill to be walking out, giving their Waving the flag on that love story. Um. By the way, th- you're you're welcome for that 50 year old uh, cultural reference. I was
2: gonna say like like love story. We got a 1970 yeah, uh, love story. Terrible. Reference yeah, up I in have here. no
0: idea where I was. My brain was not working. I will. I'll come up. With, I'm ashamed. I knew what you were talking. Yeah, I know. About. I'll come up with a, a 2020. I'll do a TikTok reference soon enough. That was embarrassing. All right. So Chad, what Godelli told me was that the NFL specifically this year um, scheduled a lot of games early that they thought would be very big. Viewership games because they wanted to have momentum viewing, you know, momentum scheduling, and they made a clear decision to put Brady's return to New England early in the year, Week Four. Obviously, we all saw what those ratings were. That will be Sunday Night Football's biggest game of the year for sure, non-Thanksgiving. It'll be one of the most watched games of the year, even though it wasn't in the 4:25 Sunday window. So, I do think some of this chat has to do with um, the NFL making a very, very smart decision in terms of scheduling these games early also and this is just like the realities of the sport when the sport has quarterbacks exciting interesting quarterbacks that can market there are more people who watch these games and i do think the league is in a very very good place you know whether it's Josh Allen or Mahomes obviously you still have Brady there um uh, you know even like someone like Trevor Lawrence i think has some interest nationally just because of his college stardom i feel like the league is in a very good place in terms of how it markets because they have the position of most importance they have more i think good quarterbacks than not do you buy those kind of those kind of theories
3: i do yeah i mean they're really blessed they have quarterbacks kind of at all stages of their career right now that are compelling You've brady at 44 years old who's still throwing five touchdown passes on sundays and um you know, Mahomes is kind of the star of the moment, and and uh, a guy like Josh Allen, as we saw Sunday night, has really emerged. And then just this rookie class that's come in that's naturally compelling because five of them were first round picks. Trevor Lawrence has been uh, pretty close to a household name among sports fans for three or four years now uh, from his time at Clemson, and and uh, you know Mac Jones is prominent. Uh, last quarterback taken in the first round it was well known because of his prominence at Alabama. So you've got kind of this great feeder system going on with the next generation of quarterbacks as well. But as far as that Bucks uh, patriots game goes, they they couldn't have planned that any better. Uh, Putting it in week four, there was a nice little amount of anticipation for it. Um, here in New England, I know uh, some TV stations up here, and we sent reporters, too, that completely overlooked the Patriots' week three game with the Saints and already went to Tampa before that game had even been played. So it just uh, – it was – had a Super Bowl atmosphere here. It was really similar. I don't know if it felt that way around the entire country, but um, here it really uh, it it had that kind of build up in magnitude, and then it ended up being a great game on top of it all. But that was really smart of them to do that, and uh, I think that, uh, as Fred said, that's uh, a really wise way to build interest in the season right away, and hopefully from their standpoint, they just kind of keep building and building on that foundation.
0: Yeah. I think the answer to Subaru buildups is correct. I mean, the, the, you know, whatever the final number was and the, you know, uh, uh, what was the final number? 28 million. Well, maybe a little more tried. Do you remember the 28 and a half? Million? Yeah. Okay, there you go. Yeah. Right. So clearly like that had national appeal. Kavitha, do you buy, uh, do you, you know, you, you worked at Bloomberg for a long time. So, um, you have written about sort of the business of the NFL, which is always obviously really good business, but that I thought Godelli actually just had a really interesting um comment and i think some of the thing i think part of what i found interesting was just that there are these artificial mechanisms that the NFL can do to increase its viewership against the the you know some of the trends of obviously cord cutting and and things like that they have they're going to have an extra game this year that that theoretically should Increase viewership numbers because it should make late season games um, uh, have some you know some of those late season games will have significant meaning and a competitive game late in the year is obviously going to uh, to draw well and so I think you know it's the, the the league can the league can always do things it seems to me to at least juice the ratings a little bit beyond what they ultimately need of course which is competitive play and compelling things
2: yeah, absolutely. And you know, I I I do buy a little bit that there is there are, there are some more interesting storylines in 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 this year's season, especially early on. Um, you know, obviously, as Chad said, it's every level of quarterbacking that we have um has at least one name that is compelling. Um at the same time, you know, some of the names that you that you threw out there that are gonna be the primary drivers between Brady and Mahomes and Allen and and Lamar are obviously, you know, they were in the league last year. So that can account for all of it. And there are, I mean there are several things that the NFL that every league does do when it puts together its schedule. Um, you know they're not just thinking about logistics and travel and things like that they are thinking about how do we create drama how do we create storylines when it's you know how do we set up to week 15 16 and 17 that they're going to be divisional matchups or um, or or um, or games that have real impacts on the standings and on the playoff picture um, I think also like we're just going to continue the end of the business of the NFL will never not be strong that's just the reality of it if you see a momentary dip um That's all that that is Um, But at the same time I think that there is something to be said For watching the growth of legalized betting at the same time that you're going to see ratings rise, right? Like Al Michaels no longer has to be euphemistic when he refers to this. So you're you're already bringing in a whole lot of viewers who have a literal monetary stake on these games who might not have had them last year and certainly haven't had them in years past. And that's only going to continue to grow and that's only going to help the NFL's ratings continue to grow.
0: Yeah, again, I, I I've sort of thought this before. It's just so silly to me that they won't talk about uh money line or over-unders on um on game broadcast i mean it's they're 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 they're, they have multi-million dollar deals already with these companies but yet they're sort of still trying to uh um to not keep some of the nomenclature some of the language on air it's it's really the silliest thing ever and, and ultimately i hope it will change i'm mark chapman welcome to the planet premier league podcast you know, if, 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 if I know there's some other podcasts now that have like like fancy, like um, sound effects where like if you move to a second topic, you'll do that. But not here. We do this. Uh, we do this organic. We do this. You know, we like it. Uh, Patrick Antonetti, as a, he's, a, oh, he's a he's a he's a he's a New York producer. We You know, we want this urban and real uh, like the, the streets of New York. Um, all right. So, uh Kavith, I'm going to start with you here. Sage Deal was taken off ESPN's airwaves after appearing on a podcast hosted by Jay Cutler, where, among other things, she questioned why former President Barack Obama identifies as black, even though he's raised by a a white mother, called the vaccine mandates sick and scary, uh, talked about uh, young female journalists uh, bearing responsibility, perhaps for for things that might happen to them covering sports. I mean, you know, you can, if you want to go back and... And listen to that. Um, so ESPN makes a decision to um, pull her off the air for a week. I, I don't know if that goes under the formalized suspension. A lot of the suspensions when it comes to ESPN. Um, you know, some have been paid, some have not been paid. Uh, just, I think everybody who's listening to this podcast knows already. I, I'm not support. I'm not in support of any suspension, uh, uh, especially when it comes to speech. I wouldn't have suspended uh, Jamel Hill. I wouldn't have suspended Sage Steele, and I would not even have suspended Kurt Schilling at least the first time before he really went over the pal. I think at a certain point, then I would have. So I'm just sort of setting it up for the audience. Sage Steele um, then says, uh, apologizes. I know my recent comments. Created controversy for the company. I apologize. We're in the midst of an extremely challenging time that impacts all of us. And it's more critical than ever that we communicate constructively and thoughtfully. So that's sort of the setup of this. Uh, Kavitha, what did you make of, of, of all of this, which became obviously very public for ESPN. And as a former ESPN employee, you know, this, um, it crossed over from the sports media world into sort of mainstream, which is what obviously always um, really Uh, you know, irks Disney and ESPN when they'll see like the Washington Post and the New York Times start covering them.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I do MSNBC to talk about these kind of broader sports issues that cross over into the mainstream a lot. and Chris Hayes want, Chris Hayes ha- asked to have me on to talk about stage. I ended up getting bumped because he got a, an exclusive with Stacey Abrams, and that's absolutely fair. But like just to kind of speak to your point there, I mean i have I have so many feelings about this and I'm gonna try and be careful with my words um because I did used to work with stage. um first of all, the timing of this is very interesting. I don't know if you can call it a suspension because she also contracted COVID, and that week that she was off the air also happens to coincide with COVID protocol. Um, so people have pointed that out. Um, I think that if you if you know Sage, if you know none of this is really new. I think it's actually very. It's been very interesting to see old clips resurface that I I assumed a lot of people had seen already, um, where people are surprised that this is the, these are her viewpoints, and that this, these are her political stances. Um, you know, there. I, I don't think it's been a secret that she has kind of always played the not just the conservative, but kind of the persecuted conservative, um, which is very interesting because ESPN of all places is an incredibly conservative space, and sports media is in general as well, um, and tends to cater to a very conservative fan. Um, and then one thing that I'll say is. When I first heard the comments, I mean, the Barack Obama stuff was just so, so ridiculous. I mean, she led that by saying, I can't remember the last time I took a census, but, um, you know, Barack Obama chooses black on his census and she's, she, you know, sage is mixed race. She was like, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, if you've taken a census in the last 30 years, since 1990, basically, at least since 2000, um, you've been able to check more than one box on the race category. But um, the my, my main question was, um, as somebody who has worked at ESPN and particularly worked at ESPNW, Every October, ESPN has their their ESPNW Summit um, in California, and Sage is always a very prominent part of of that conference. You know, she she hosts panels, she introduces marquee guests, um, and and you know she's a, a very front facing personality there. And especially after the comments that she made about. Women journalists having a responsibility and not getting harassed because of what they wear, um, which is something that Sarah Spain and I have talked uh, on her podcast about on at ESPN, um, and numerous women in the industry have to deal with on a daily basis. I don't know how you continue to have somebody who holds and puts forth those kinds of views about her colleagues representing ESPN's Women's Summit at at ESPNW. Um, and they they did pull her off of, of the conference. And I think that was that was the right move, just giving the messaging. Um, but yeah, the whole thing is very messy. And I think it's very um, I think it's just very telling the kinds of suspensions and disciplinary actions that ESPN has handed down in the past versus what they've kind of allowed Sage to get away with up until this point.
0: Well, Chad, I'll get your viewpoint. I, I mean, to me, I would say the only thing consistent about ESPN punishments is that it's inconsistent, um, and, and I would say that across the board, whether you're perceiving the person to be uh, progressive or liberal or conservative, I, I think um, and I feel like I've been. Very and it's consistent.
2: all is wholly swayed by by public sentiment and by fear of public sentiment, right? See, I like, would say,
0: well, I, my my counter to you would be this: I think it's swayed by standing at ESPN. And star power, where I and maybe you, you listen. You worked there, I didn't. And Chad, you certainly waited after this. But like, my sense is that there are different. There are sort of Jordan rules for Stephen A. Smith or Mike Greenberg versus somebody who's rank and file. Uh, you hundred percent true. Yeah, yeah. So that this, this, my 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 issue with, if I can remove myself from how I feel or do not feel about Sage's specific comments, I just don't feel they're consistent. I feel they they are. They are. They have always been way over, the, um, all over the map um, with this stuff. And again, I, I want to be very clear for the audience. I do not think Sage should have been suspended for this, and I'm sure there will be people who will be critical of me for that. But I'm but, um, consistent there. I just, I don't think, one, I don't think suspensions really work, and two, um, I think it's silly for, for people to be suspended for that. That said, could be the, I I think it's more usually about star power. And I think if Sage... I'll just be blunt. I think if Sage had the the same star power as Mike Greenberg or Stephen A. Smith, I don't, I don't think she gets suspended. That's just, you may disagree with me. That's, that's my read on it.
2: Uh, Well, sorry. I thought I, uh, Chad should jump in here, but I mean, just very, yeah.
0: Yeah. Chad, go ahead. Well, I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you, Kibitha. I'm sorry. So Chad, how do you, what was your takeaway? If, uh, if, if that is. The I think record, that's I'm part
3: honest. of it. Certainly the pecking order there. And uh, you know, who has the biggest star on their dressing room door, but uh, it's also about where ESPN's bread is buttered. I mean, one of the things that jumped out to me when she was suspended and seeing the wording of the press release on that um and the statement that they made
0: yeah I w- by the way, just for the record i let's say she was taken on yeah right i I, I want to be careful with suspended because i I mean i unless you reported no, I no, don't know that no,
3: but you know that's a perception I think but um right you, you right. compare it to uh what Jamel had to deal with back in two thousand and seventeen when she uh uh, she suggested Cowboys uh, fans have uh, boycott advertisers after Jerry Jones said people who disrespect the flag. I'm going to play for the Cowboys. Uh, that was considerably harsher. And it's because, um, you know, she challenged a league partner. Uh, <laughs> but it still struck me um, because I I, I I think what Sage says is worse. Um but my general rule of thumb was something like this: uh, is, is if Clay Travis is arguing on someone's behalf, they are probably in the wrong, and uh, he's uh, he's very pro pro Sage to Fox News right now. So,
0: Do you, let me ask you this, Kavitha: um, in terms of an end game here, I, let me, again, I, I will say this: I, I've spoken with Sage many times in the past. Uh, those interactions have been pleasant, incredibly professional. She's always been lovely to record. me. I, I, I will, I will a,
2: absolutely say that. Yeah. yeah.
0: I, I thought she was a good host to Countdown, and in, I think in many ways, actually, ESPN has uh, um, uh, made a terrible decision to pull her off there. I actually thought she was a, she was a good NBA host and ego free to um, to let her the people around her um, shine. Now, all that said, Kavitha, I, I I have looked at this as it strikes me when you are this public, when you're going on Cutler's podcast, when you're commenting on social media, it feels like it's a bit of a, an intentional sort of wanting for there to be an end game with ESPN. Like it almost feels like she's trying to get a buyout. Um, Again, I don't know that I haven't reported it, but that, that was my, that's sort of been my read on this, that like, this is sort of a little bit of a prelude, sort of pushing the sort of the public button a little bit to maybe, to maybe have some kind of official, um, you know, official end of her ESPN tenure. So that's my read. Again, I could be wrong about this, but that's how I've been seeing this. And um you know, I would be very surprised if whenever her contract ends, like they extend it anyway. But that's how I've been reading. It almost feels like she she kind of wants to get out. And if that's the case, you figure maybe she and her representatives just sort of cut a deal with ESPN, and then she can go elsewhere.
2: I think that's a fair read. I mean, you know, given what I said before about how none of this is new, definitely the way she's going about this is new, right? Like she's doing this in the most public kind of front-facing way that that you can. Um, you know, in an age of social media, where obviously if you're doing a video interview with Jay Cutler, those clips are going to go viral when you say anything controversial. Um, and and I think she's also. I mean, I don't. I have. I have not talked to Sage in, in years. Um, I have no inside knowledge about this but she's also doing this at a time when it's very easy to sell the cancel culture narrative the fact fe- you know if she does end up leaving espn over this she will have a slew of fans who will eat up the uh the idea that she was canceled for having alternative opinions um, and that kind of thing um instead of opinions that might actually damage co-workers and uh that undermine the business and undermine espn itself and all of that um but yeah i mean it, it does seem like i mean the running joke on Twitter right now is that she's gunning for that for that Tucker Carlson spot and she she is getting the praise of those of those people um in those roles but on on a very serious note I mean will Kane made a lot of money <laughs> from playing that from playing that role and uh, and from making that jump so I do think that if that is an end game here there's absolutely a path for sage to to fill that
0: all right let's um all right. Well, let's move. We'll, we'll again, we'll get the, the, the production elements here as we move on to another uh, topic. I appreciate your thoughts on that. The um, the NHL is starting in, as we taped this in the next couple days. And it's a really significant season for them with two new media rights partners. Obviously, ESPN has had the NHL before, but it's been a while. And Turner Sports. So let me start with you, Chad. Um, it's a really big moment, it feels like, for hockey in that uh, both these networks get a chance to put their stamp on the NHL coverage. Both these networks uh, have the opportunity to sort of bring new fans in. Uh, both these networks, I think, will play a major role in, in whether hockey grows over the next couple of years or does not. Um, what's your expectations for the coverage on Turner and ESPN?
3: Well, I think our uh, suspicions that ESPN marginalized the NHL when they didn't have the rights uh, have been confirmed. I saw the uh, Sidney Crosby injury going across, uh, may, may not play with a bad back. That's something that would have been completely ignored in the regular season, let alone the preseason, uh, over these last, what, when did they lose it, 95? Something, uh, yeah, so around there. Yeah, I'll find cool. It for you. The, the last uh, 15 or so years, anyway. So uh, that obviously is great for the nhl and it's probably why gary Bettman was so giddy on those conference calls with the media after they i've uh, never seen the guy happy before <laughs> but let alone not being booed. maybe that's what it was but uh um I, the, the the benefits of espn uh, being aligned with the nhl are already showing and the season hasn't even begun uh the thing that jumps out to me and maybe i'm overlooking some some people, but it feels like it's going to be really familiar faces almost everywhere where, where it's either the NHL, uh, the, the um, people who are such a part of NHL. Uh, yeah, NBC's NHL coverage uh, ending up at Turner and a couple of ESPN or ESPN people who have always been associated with hockey, getting that uh, prominence back with that. You know, Bucci Gross, Steve Levy, Linda Cohn, uh, Melrose um, uh, and the, the the new names that have been hired are, are superstars you know messi is part of it wayne gretzky uh with tnt um i'm, I'm interested to see if any new faces whether it's a uh, studio host or analysts you know mar- uh, maybe a mid-level hockey player ends up being a great analyst um emerges out of this because i don't see who the name is going to be quite yet
0: uh espn had uh hockey last from 1992 to 2004 so that's your demarcation with verses, and then nbc sports oh yeah. yeah what about you uh It could be that I I, I'm um I'm optimistic I I will say cautiously optimistic for both both um both companies because I think they're really going to invest significant money you you know they just put a ton of money to get the rights, so I think they're going to put significant money in the production and as Chad said a lot of the people we're going to see we have seen on NBC so they really you know whether it's Kenny Albert or or Eddie Olchuk Liam McHugh people like that like they they have um Anson Carter, they, they have some really quality people already in the positions of, of importance. So I think if you're a hockey fan, I I think it's really going to be an amazing time for you because it's not just NBC anymore, trying to push the sport. It's like two companies trying to push the sport. And I think two companies that want you to watch their product.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, listen, the biggest winners out of all of this is definitely the hockey fan. Right. Um, I mean, it, it was no secret that ESPN was suppressing hockey coverage. I was there when I can't remember which round of layoffs it was, but basically like the vast majority of that round of layoffs was was from the hockey, the hockey staff. Um, and and it was you know it was this very gutting kind of thing especially if you're a fan of the sport and you just want to be able to watch and get some proper analysis I do think the continuity with having a lot of people from NBC is is going to make that transition easier and some of the old faces you mentioned Melrose and Cone and and what have you um, and then with some new blood I mean Emily Kaplan has been not only a fantastic reporter in this space um, but has been groomed for some kind for for national TV she's on around the horn twice a week and that kind of thing Um um... You know, I, I will also say that on the other side, when Doc Emmerich announced that he was retiring, a big question that a lot of us had was what happens to NBC right now? Like, what happens not just to their to their hockey coverage, but to um, to NBC Sports as a whole? And and we're seeing, you know, what happens when the Goliath that is ESPN can swoop into this to this market? Um, and and the the way that that ESPN knows how to work with its leagues and such synergy is obviously such a benefit to both sides here. I mean, you mentioned. Wayne Gretzky and obviously he's the, he's a huge name He's the greatest hockey player Of all time But he's also spent A couple of years Doing doing media For NHL.com Like this is This is something He seems to have been Groomed for um, Post retirement So I I mean I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be great I think it's gonna You know You're gonna see A lot of um, You're gonna see A lot of resources Being poured into this And frankly I mean I love hockey And I've always Kind of lamented The fact that hockey Is like the redheaded Stepchild of Of the four major Men's leagues And, and this, this this might this might end up changing that. And you also have a whole slew of just like very exciting, young, former number one draft picks, um, n- not just in, in, in markets that are, are winning, but might be smaller markets. But you have them in markets like New York and New Jersey, um, which will absolutely help help drive viewership here, too.
0: Yeah, we got a spare room here in Toronto. If you want to go, come to feel free to come to a city where hockey is certainly not the the, the stepchild of anything. It is uh, it is front and center. But yeah, the league is very ascendant. I feel like right now, whether it's Connor McDavid, or Austin Matthews, McKinnon, um, it's uh, it's a, I think it's a very good time to be in hockey. Gretzky, I will say, uh, Chad, you, if you feel free to sort of, weigh, I'm a little skeptical on him. I think it, he, you know if you've ever interviewed him, incredibly nice guy. Obviously, he's the greatest player of all time. His uh resume speaks for itself but he's not really dynamic on, not it. on camera I think the real challenge yeah the challenge for turner will be to uh figure out ways to to work him into the studio where he doesn't have to be the um the 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 star of that show uh, interestingly enough he's the most famous guy on that set by a ton but if you can make him sort of a uh, um a performer who doesn't have to sort of carry the show then I think he's got a chance to be really, really good. And maybe that's the case with Tocket, Bissonette, and Nansen Carter, who have sort of more external personalities than him. But yeah, that's, um, I think, and I'm, sh- and Turner's really smart with studios. So I think they'll figure it out. But if you're expecting Wayne Gretzky to come in and, and to be like the next Shaq, Kenny Smith, and Charles Barkley, like that's not Wayne Gretzky.
3: No, it's not. Uh, by all accounts, he's a little bit different when he's, uh, you know, on the golf course or the 19th hole and a, a, a great, a great great storyteller and, and uh, probably uh, an off-color storyteller but the, he's a guy who's been famous since he was what eight years old um, you're going to be naturally guarded when the camera is in front of you just based on your life experience of that and um, maybe they can draw the the, the the real Gretzky out of him Bissonnette might be able to do it I mean he, he gets laughs out of everybody um, so uh, I could see him being a little bit more uh, looser and personable than than uh, the perception of him is uh, uh, during his playing career and then uh, you know afterward but uh, it's probably going to take a little bit of work and it's going to take a, a willingness of him to uh, put himself out there a little bit more than he has.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the analogy I would make is, like, you're never, obviously, Wayne Gretzky's not going to be Shaq or Barkley. But, um, you know, Richard, I, I read your kind of review on the Manning Brothers' Monday Night Football uh, broadcast. And and maybe Wayne Gretzky is the Eli to a Bissonette or a Messier's Peyton, right? If, like, he,
0: if, he, if he is, that'd be great, because I think Eli's <laughs> actually got some pretty good... E- Eli's the, the real star. I, I
2: think Eli's... Eli is great. I mean, listen, I I love the Manning brothers. I find those broadcasts incredibly compelling, but it is still kind of rough around the edges, and you can tell that you know you have an experienced enough production team there that they're gonna get it. They're gonna get it fully right um, at some point this season, and I, I do think that there is there is a way to kind of incorporate um, Wayne Gretzky in there. Look, Gretzky is his his what he brings to the table here are, are obviously his name recognition and his fame and, and being the greatest player and the insight, like the actual hockey insight that comes from that, but also just the access that he's had over the years and that he will continue to have two young stars, people that we've not heard of yet um, people who haven't, you know, been been interviewed right before draft night, that kind of thing. Um, and, and the dynamism can absolutely come from everyone else. And and hopefully they can bring that out of him.
0: Well, one, I, so I have great faith in Turner that they, they're really good with studio, obviously. They produce the greatest sports studio show of all time. So I think they have really good people there. The other thing could be I think you just hit on something really interesting. What could be really interesting television is if they get some of these young stars to interact with Gretzky. Like you want to see Nathan McKinnon talk to Gretzky or Matthews McDavid. talk to Gretzky. And they will, yeah, McDavid, like those stars will, I think, be excited to talk to Gretzky. So you have to just figure out how to make that dynamic work. But I'm with you. I think. Not to say that they wouldn't come on with the league rights holder regardless, but I always think that some of the players like were excited to come on set and talk to Shaq. And like, you know, talk maybe not as much to talk to Barkley anymore since he's a little, you know, more old man yell at the crack yell at the clouds this, these days. But you know what I'm saying? Like, there's kind of a cool thing for like uh, you know, you when you get when you when you sort of walked on the set of inside the NBA, if you were a player, it was sort of like uh, You know, you sort of made it kind of thing. And I feel like that'll be the thing with the the um, both shows, by the way, not just the Gretzky show, but I think it'll be the same kind of feeling with Messier and Chelios as well, who, you know, they're not as, um, you know, they're they're not they're they're not Gretzky because nobody's Gretzky. But, you know, those are all time guys on their own Mount Rushmore's as well.
2: Well, and I think that's you know that's exactly what I was thinking of when I when I, I mentioned that Gretzky has been doing some of this media for NHL because I remember before the draft last year he did a sit down you know a Zoom sit down because it's still still COVID um, with Alexis Lafreniere and and uh, Quentin Byfield Jake Sanderson I think Jamie Drysdale was on there and you know Laugh hadn't really done any interviews leading up to the draft except for the one with Wayne Gretzky he so that's Laff.
0: wow you were you were like uh, you're in Rangers <laughs> land I love that. Yeah. <laughs>
2: very much in rangers land right now i'm debating whether or not i'm going to spend 600 dollars on this henrik lundquist retirement ticket um, Do it, but uh i i know it's a once in a lifetime thing he's the goalie of my generation all of that um but yeah like these are these are going to be kids who either their agents are telling them to shut up to shut up right before the draft or you know they're going to be media wary except if wayne gretzky comes calling right
0: I do think I will say this, and Chad, then we'll finish up with very quickly on Sunday Night Baseball and I'll get you guys out of here. I actually think that ESPN show has a chance to be really, really good. Um, having sat on some press calls uh, this week, I don't know if, Chad, you were on them as well, but I think Messier and Chelios are really good. They're they're more dynamic, certainly, than Gretzky. And Melrose and Levy have a longstanding friendship relationship, including an rr one where they have great chemistry together. I think Melrose is a really good fit on a studio show because he's a bit of a wise ass and, and sort of is willing to say stuff. So if again, maybe both shows will be good, but if you ask me today, like what, what studio show has the more potential between the two at the moment, I think that ESPN show does. I I think that ESPN show could be really good. I'm, uh, I'm, 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 I think Messier could be sneaky good at this. That's my, Quick take. Here. Yeah, I
3: agree. And Chelios is really blunt. Messier is too, but but Chelios Turner is.
0: Yeah, Chelios is yeah,
3: very he ne- blunt. He never had Absolutely. a filter as a player, and if that can carry over to television, he's going to be really good at it. I I, I trust uh, Turner to put together and to, to oversee a studio show a little bit better. Um, I mean, you you look back to the NBA show. Um, they didn't need to add Shaq. That, that Kenny and Barkley were fine and they the uh, adding Shaq when the, there was that bidding war on him I, I remember thinking what are they doing they've, they've already got the best show and took a little bit but it actually enhanced it and uh, that, that was that was a bold move even yeah even though they were going to get a superstar it was a, a bold move and it worked um, so I have faith in them that they're going to make this work with the NHL but uh, I think ESPN is starting with a Pretty considerably better roster at the beginning.
0: All right, let's finish up here. Um, so it looks like the Sunday Night Baseball crew um, is going to change. Did I, I, I think was that Marshan who broke i A uh, credit. It was, if it's yeah, not. I yeah, apologize. To actually. Okay. Yeah. So there you go. So Andrew Marshan of the New York Post um, uh, first reported the news that Matt Vaskurian will be leaving uh, Sunday Night Baseball, and so that opens up. Um, that opens up obviously. Um, a play-by-play job to start with. It also, in theory, you can change up that booth if you wanted to. Though, I mean, ESPN's love of uh, of a rod uh, doesn't really seem to have any um, God <laughs> any decline. So, um, so let's presume Alex Rodriguez is there. Kavitha, do you have a uh, in terms of a wish list? Do you have anybody you'd want on there? I, I mean, I think we all know who the the candidates will be. They'll be, throwing
3: in you know, Susan, John Kavitha.
0: And, yeah. Carl Ravitch internally. I, I'm a big Jason Benetti oh, yeah. guy who uh, calls the White Sox. That's who. That's absolutely who I would uh, put on there. But if you, uh, I don't know, Kevith, when you look at that, you know, I guess you, one thing the, the you got to get along with a Rod and you got to let a Rod star, which is what ESPN management seems to want. Um, but they have an opportunity, you know, to bring in a big baseball game caller, and it still is, you know, even though the numbers aren't like you know over the, it's not baseball from 1976, but it's still a national baseball game of the week which has meaning for a lot of people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm with you. I think Benetti is the best uh, of of the list that that I've seen on the on the short list to to take over there. Um, ESPN is not really short on on talent or on on places they can go here. If you are looking for you know a a more diverse booth, shall we say? I mean, Melanie Newman and Sarah Langs uh, were were you know would be super interesting. Sarah does color, um, Melanie doing play by play. Uh, Both of them have huge experience and and all of that. I uh, so sue. Susan, I think I think Susan should just be everywhere. I'm I'm just a huge fan <laughs> of Susan Waldman. I'm, I, I'm a yeah, but I'm also like you know, but I, but uh, there is something. I mean, she's not, she's definitely not for everyone. And this is absolutely nostalgia speaking. But if we're going to her. be a Homer. I, I love Dang. her to death if uh, we're going you guys to the so East coast biased too. <laughs> if we're going to be a Homer though I think I mean Ron darling first of all is actually is extremely good at this and I, and, and and he brings in um, he brings in both an expertise but also a lightheartedness <laughs> at times that that you don't really expect I will say that one of and I'm not just saying this because I'm a Yankee fan but one of the best um, baseball analyst that I watch day in and day out during during broadcast is David Cohn David Cohn reads voraciously he knows so much about this game very, he reads from I extremely agree. diverse sources he also brings in analytics in a way that is accessible and doesn't kind of shut off the the fan who is already kind of anti-stat and anti-analytics to that um, and he contextualizes it really nicely and I think that would be and he obviously you know has interacted with Alex over the years <laughs> I, yeah my sense
0: is that there's a relationship there so if they would yeah if they were going to bring in another as uh, i personally think the mets television booth is the best in a lot of giants people love kuiper san and, diego um, uh yeah dave fleming um yeah chad you may like um Orsillo uh from his days in um in boston but uh, yeah gary cohen keith hernandez and ron darling to me i'm sure some of this is biased because i lived in new york that, that no, to me true. is the best uh at least regional group. But so, Chad, I mean, like, it, I mean, ESPN has a real chance to sort of do something interesting here. And again, I, I Benetti would be my pick, but I don't know if Benetti and A Rod work. And so I, I'm just, I don't love A Rod on that broadcast. I, I think A Rod is very good in the studio. And I think A Rod in spurts or sort of smaller uh, doses, I think is very, very, very good. But after a certain time, it like, Two and a half, three hours of Alex Rodriguez analyzing it. It's just to me, it's too much. It's just, it's, it's just too much. Alex Rodriguez. ESPN is so enamored with the guy. I mean, it's he should change his name to Tebow. That's how enamored they are with a Rod. Um, but I don't think it's going to change. It's very clear that ESPN execs um, love Alex Rodriguez. So I think clearly, whoever you want to be the play-by-play person. Is gonna have to have either a pre existing relationship with Alex Orregas or Alex Orregas is gonna have to like that guy. But I would change the whole booth. If it was me, if I was, you know, if I'm Norby Williamson, which I think everybody on this call knows I'm not, um, nor who I will hear from ever, um, I would blow it up and I would start anew. That would be my well, that's what I would do. Chat. the wrong
3: guy's leaving, that's for sure. Uh, we uh, yeah, I would agree. Excursion did the uh, is doing the Uh, Ray, Ray, he's got. Well, that's where he's going. But he's doing the Ray. He did the Rays Red Sox game yesterday on MLB Network. Yeah, he had a great call, call, and he's much more at ease with Smoltz. Uh, It was he was. I agree. It it feels like with A Rod, he's um, he defers, and he's constantly trying to pull things out of him. And A Rod is just nonsensical sometimes. He he will just say things to to uh
2: try he's so worried about not saying the yes, wrong thing yes, he exactly. ends up saying absolutely That's nothing it. but he wants it's to so sound smart too it,
0: in an attempt to be polished it doesn't it does not always it does not often come off as yeah. authentic no
3: he says like the, the joke everybody makes up here was mccarver said once i think during a red sox yankees series that um a walk is as good a home as a home run and Arod says things like that <laughs> multiple times during a game right. just trying to right. sound like he's thinking game on a different level and he is he does think the game at a different level but um sometimes it doesn't translate in the booth and I remember when they put those guys together uh Vaskirgin was the guy rod wanted um so I don't
0: yeah they're buddies yeah Same agents, I don't I know if you
3: I don't know if he'll he'll have a say in who they hire but I I third what you guys say Benetti's great he's a guy who um has a old school broadcaster voice, but uh, really modern sensibilities, he's funny, he's analytically sound. Um yeah. and oh, uh, you just yeah. don't know how we work with Arod and
0: that that yeah, first of all, I think Arod will have to say that stat cast uh broadcast is so much better than the main broadcast. Um it doesn't nearly oh, get, Perez any, is really the, underrated. The, um, he's really good too.
2: Yeah, and Perez get, is fantastic. And and I, exactly. I- I agree with you, Richard. That a Rod, brings a lot to the table here, and he is he is very good in the studio. And the thing is, for me, a Rod's greatest strength is it's so clear how much he loves baseball. He just 100%. he really loves this game. You know, there are players. Derek Jeter is a good example of a player who did his job day in and day out. But I don't think anyone who covered him or who's interviewed him would say that he he. You know he lived and breathed the game of baseball in that same way that A. Rod just loves this game, and that is more suited for a studio role. I think if I were blowing the whole thing up and I were going with a player to be in that booth, and I know he's with Turner right now, but Curtis Granderson is so good, and I I, like I, I, I yeah. think that he would be Pedro that too.
0: Role. Yeah, the one thing the the mm,
2: Pedro, Pedro too absolutely. the one
0: thing. Oh, I think Pedro's very good in the studio. The the one thing. Um, the one thing Yankees beat reporters would tell you over the years who covered A Rod was that, like he would he would go home and watch like West Coast baseball. Like he'd be able to talk he he would he would know what had happened the night before in games outside of New York. So I he's a base he is truly a baseball nerd. It's just I think you gotta use that to your advantage, and to me it works better in a little bit. Um, smaller doses. But yeah, you know, Chad, it was interesting. Like, I'm not always the biggest Vaskirjan fan, but when I heard him call that, uh, we're talking about Red Sox uh, 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 Rays Game 3. Um, just if you're listening to this in a couple of days. Um, he was great. I mean, and his call of Christian Vasquez is one of the best calls I've heard um, in the entire year because he, he telegraphed it and the guy homered. But um, it was interesting. It was just interesting to hear Vaskirjan with a different color analyst because it felt like a Much more casual.
3: Uh, you know, spoke stocks a lot and he gets a lot of grief sometimes for uh, being a get-off-my-lawn type when it comes to uh, pretty much everything about modern baseball, but he, he's really a, a good broadcaster and thoughtful, and um, I don't know if he's in that category with A-Rod or the the guy here who does the same thing, goes home and watches the West Coast games all the time. Is Dennis Eckersley. He loves the game, like a fan. Oh, uh, yeah, I love that. Well, it comes you know across like that. he really yeah. pays attention. Like, he may not be watching the Mariners every yeah, night, love- but he, he's... He's plugged into everything that's going on, and that's, that's rarer than it should be.
0: Yeah, well, I expect, you know, I'm talking to two people, one in New York, one in, one in the Boston area. Um, I expect those broadcasts to be great. I mean, they should, New York and Boston should have national-level broadcasts every night. Um, and the good news is, at least in some ways, for some of the broadcasters, they do. Like, Dennis Eckersley is a national-level broadcaster every night, calling Red Sox in the same way, I think, like the Mets guys. Um, are I actually think the Yankees broadcast. I like Kay. I, I've always miss loved Singleton. Singleton. Like well, we, we got to pour exit. one out.
2: We got to pour one yeah, out for really. Ken Singleton, who, yeah. who just that's a, I, I know yeah.
0: Michael, Michael Kay gets shit on a lot. I think Michael Kay is excellent. I, I I'll I'll ride with Michael Kay. I think he's, I've always thought he's a good broadcaster.
2: I think he does exactly what he's tasked with doing very well. <laughs>
0: uh, well, that's, boy, that's, uh, that's, that, 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 that's, that's, that's probably, you're not probably getting invited to the Michael Kay reunion show there. <laughs> Kavitha, with that kind of compliment. All right, listen, I've kept you guys so long. My God! I mean, this is—we're uh, over forty minutes here, uh, breaking that old podcast rule of you know don't <laughs> make a podcast longer than a certain amount of time. Although, should I tell you guys now who the guest is on the podcast, who, who will be the, the yes. first part of this podcast? Oh, who make this fun for you? It Sage Steele. See if you can guess. It is a no. It is not <laughs> Sage Steele. Um, it is the lead analyst for ESPN's NBA coverage. And Gandhi? who's that? DeBoris? There you yeah. go. Jeff Van oh, Gundy. Oh, hey, we'll that be on this be podcast. I've not taped it yet, but uh, but that will be uh, that will be coming on this podcast, you know, schedules uh, permitting. Um, Ask him it, what it, he really thinks
2: about about referees and flagrant twos. Yeah,
0: if it's not Van Gundy, then everything I just said will never. <laughs> Last time I interviewed him, so there you go. <laughs> Last Could time I interviewed Van Gundy. he ate a sandwich. Yeah, sandwich that's why
3: cool. interview. So if you can, <laughs>
0: it sounds like Jeff Van Gundy. He's almost like a (laughs) Seinfeld character in a way. Kavitha Davidson is a sports and culture writer for The Athletic and the host of the Culture Calculus podcast. Chad Finn, the sports media writer and columnist for the Boston Globe. Thank you very much, guys. I will definitely have you back.
3: Thanks, man. Good
0: talking to you guys. All right, back in my studio. um, My thanks to Jeff Van Gundy, Kavitha Davidson, and Chad Finn for all their time and their insights. Thank you, by the way, for sticking around. I know this is a long one. Um, Please head to the Sports Media with Richard Deitch page wherever you listen to podcasts. Please leave us a review. Five-star review and a note. Uh, That's how this podcast continues. That stuff really does have meaning. If you want to head to the archives, uh, last couple of podcasts, conversation with Bucks broadcaster Lisa Byington and Sixers broadcaster Kate Scott on their new jobs. First two women uh, to be full-time television play-by-play voices in the NBA. First two women to be full-time television voices I think for any uh, big four major sport in the United States so big things for them Conrad Thompson and Jeff Jarrett on the process of creating a successful podcast before that Ken Burns obviously the famous sports documentarian before that Gus Johnson and Akib Tlaib of Fox Sports and Kevin Clark of the ringer on a lot of NFL stuff again head to the sports media with Richard Deitch page wherever you listen to this podcast and, uh, and check out stuff My thanks to Patrick Antonetti, as always, for producing this podcast. Thanks to everybody at cage 13 and thanks to you. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.